0: The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This. Join me in welcoming Dr. Jennifer Moss. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Emporia State University. And Dr. Jenny Moss has a wide range of experience working in education from Montessori early childhood to teaching high school English. She does research in educational psychology focused on self-determination theory. Thank you so much for having me. This is a a great opportunity, and I'm really excited to be here. She has been especially interested in self-determination theory. Would you define this for us and explain how it relates to motivation for teachers and students? Absolutely. There's
1: um, a wide range of things that make up self-determination theory. It's sometimes called a meta-theory where there's lots of little pieces underneath. But the biggest pieces that we talk the most about are the idea, first, that we have basic psychological needs for autonomy, relatedness, and competence. And that when those needs are met, we thrive. And when those needs are thwarted, we might not do as well. In addition, a big piece of self-determination theory is how we think about motivation. So frequently, if you take a course, you had to take an ed psych course or a developmental course and you'll talk about intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. So intrinsic is great because the students want to do it and extrinsic, well, sometimes you got to get them to do stuff so you give them stickers and candy. Well. In the world of self-determination theory, we look at a broad range of different types of motivation that go from a motivation where you couldn't care less, really couldn't care less, all the way to intrinsic motivation. And it matters in education because there are a lot of times where we have to ask students to do things maybe they don't wanna do. And rather than letting them become amotivated, or just absolutely not motivated. Um, There are a lot of ways rather than buying them off with rewards and stickers, there's a lot of ways we can positively encourage them to take part in what's happening in the classroom.
0: Well, that sounds exciting as a classroom teacher to have more ideas of things I can do to motivate students. Now we are planning A second episode with specific strategies and practical information that teachers are going to be able to use to easily implement in their classroom. For this episode, we're focusing on understanding what is self-determination and considering how motivation in the teaching and learning process is so important.
1: It's just like it's everywhere. To me, the ideas that we think about with self-determination theory are kind of like air. It's just there all the time. And when I talk about it with students and at conferences, people are like, wow, that just explains it. I'm like, that explains it. The first place, though, that I want to start is just more broadly and generally, there are certain basic needs we have in order to survive on the planet. And we think of things like air, water. Christy, what's another thing that you would need to survive here for physical
0: needs? Food, like I had a a student that would come to class and I would give him a disposable spoonful of peanut butter because he hadn't eaten and needed some protein to get him moving. Absolutely, it's why I used to keep stashes of granola bars in my desk too. Yep, I completely understand.
1: So food, space is one. If you're too crowded, it doesn't feel good. We need water. So we need these things to survive. And and you can survive if you don't have all of them, even if you don't have enough of each of them. You know, we can survive, but who wants to just survive? We wanna thrive. If we have adequate amounts of all of these things like food and water and shelter, and um, space and we we will thrive. And it's very similar with self-determination theory because we look at these three basic psychological needs. Sometimes they call them nutriments where you really have a need for autonomy, which is the ability to make your own choices, to feel, feel like you have some sense of volition or choicefulness in your world, and we have the idea of relatedness. And that's a really important one. That one always feels pretty obvious because, well, of course, you want to have people you know and that, you, that care about you and have warm connections with. And then the third one is competence. That it's a basic psychological need for us to feel competent as we go through our day to day life. And if we don't feel competent, we feel pretty crummy. If we don't feel like we have a lot of relatedness, we might feel lonely. And if we don't feel like we have any autonomy and choice, we might feel pretty controlled.
0: Well, I'm just thinking for a moment of how those things play out and I'm imagining them in my previous classrooms mm-hmm. of yeah. the power of choice and mm-hmm. being connected in a classroom.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Rich Ryan, who's one of the founders of Self-Determination Theory, who's founded... This work had been going on for a while, but they kind of gave it a name and put a stamp on it around 1985. And it was Richard Ryan and Ed Deasy from the University of Rochester in uh, New York. And they they came up with that then. But, oh, I think it was 2016, I was at a a Self-Determination Theory conference. And Rich was saying, that some recent research they had done showed one of the most important things, and I'm thinking this was an elementary school kind of research, one of the most important things that determined what whether or not a child would be successful that year in school was if the child thought that the teacher liked them. Not even whether the teacher did or didn't, but it's what the child perceived, it's what the child thought. And that, so that sense of relatedness is huge. And because autonomy is important and competence is very easy to see in school, sometimes we neglect focusing
0: on that relatedness. So the other side of it, you say autonomy versus control. And I'm thinking back to a more traditional classroom environment where the teacher stands at the front of the room and lectures and then tests students. Right. And I'm imagining how these three things play out in that more traditional teacher focused classroom. I have
1: an answer for that. Not well is usually what we find. When students' basic psychological needs are not met, and especially when there are, there are shades of this because there's a difference between being not met and being thwarted. But if every time you get up to sharpen your pencil, someone yells at you and tells you to go sit back down, who told you you had permission to do that? Your need may be being thwarted. And there are a lot of negative consequences to that. When we have a sense of autonomy, when we, we perceive that, that we are acting autonomously, which is kind of the $0.95 cent jargon for we decided to do this. We we have a lot more internalized motivation for doing it. We care. We're like, yeah, I decided to do this, so I'm going to really work hard. But when you think of the classroom, not everything is something you've decided to do. I didn't decide to take a spelling test. Honestly, when I was teaching fourth grade, I didn't decide to give them spelling tests either <laughs> I was made to give spelling tests which is what control is where you have a sense that you don't have a choice and that you are acting because you have to that that there is control You're, you there shoulds involved and have tos involved and rewards, and stickers, and grades, and money, and really you're only doing it because you have to, or because someone's making you. And when teachers can support their students' autonomy, or they can act in a way that's controlling. To go back to the controlling for just a minute, there's a lot of research that shows that not only do students, you know, they, they don't like it, I said it doesn't turn out well, Really what we find is that um, in environments where the teacher control is very high, students have a lot less engagement and we know that means less learning. They also have really high levels of anxiety and anger and those kind of feed into the A motivation and they kind of check out. But we also know that this this happens over time If somewhere in fourth grade, you just check out, it's gonna be really hard to get you to check back in in fifth grade. And there may be things that you've missed. That leads of course, to sixth and seventh and so on. And so it can send kids on a downward trajectory. So that's why, that's really what I mean when I say it doesn't end well. Mm
0: -hmm. I remember working with students who had very little background knowledge and very little previous experience. And they were very much defeatists of themselves that I can't do this and getting them to think about that I'm there to help them, they can be capable, they are able to do it. And to get that change of thought process mm-hmm. was harder than teaching them the actual act of how to do it. Absolutely. and. That
1: goes right into competence versus incompetence, kind of the next piece in thinking about the opposite. We all want to feel competent, made what was supposed to be an oven pancake last week. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was, we're still laughing about it at home because I didn't understand the recipe enough. And what I was making was a quiche.
0: Oh.
1: And I don't like eggs but I thought the other ingredients would offset egginess and it would be a pancake. With a good sense of humor, um, I did my best, but wow, I made quiche and I did not eat it. It was disgusting. Okay, I was asked to have a tiny bite and volitionally, I agreed to have the tiny bite and spit it out, but I did not feel very competent. And in fact, that was, one of a few different cooking fiascos that had happened that week. So I um, went out for dinner. a a night or so after that, I'm like, yeah, I'm just not I
0: cannot do this right now. I feel incompetent. I'm guessing that you're not real eager to try making oven pancakes again.
1: No, 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 no. (laughs) But um, you know, when we can set up a situation, where students feel competent. And I know with background knowledge, that's one of the biggest problems is that they don't know it, they know they don't know it, and they don't see how they're gonna get it, so I'm done. Mm -hmm. But if we can set up our lessons, our set up experiences for them so that they can be competent, then we can get them engaged in the process. Um, There's a lot of things teachers sometimes do thinking it's going to be helpful, that decreased competence. Um, Fortunately, I guess my daughter was on the high side of the group in the class. So it wasn't her at the bottom, but her seventh grade math teacher thought it was a great idea to put up scores, like how many people got A's, B's, C's, D's and F's on the test, like like by number, you know? (laughs) And Annie and I had a, a conference with the teacher, and I'm sitting there doing whatever I can to hold my mouth shut. And, um, but Annie, Annie just looked at her and said, I don't think this is a good idea that you're doing this. And um, the teacher said, well, Annie, I don't see why you would have a problem with it. You're never at the bottom. And Annie just looked at her with bug eyes and said, but can you imagine how that kid feels? Mm. And so that's what I think of when I think of how sometimes we make students feel incompetent. It is hard when you have a student that is feeling isolated and it may be that you're looking at the student saying, but you're sitting there with all your friends and the student can't really articulate that. These are only people that are nice to me when you're looking, they are not my friends. And so they may feel a sense of isolation in a group, and that student might benefit from having the choice, having some autonomy or agency, and being allowed to work by themselves. Making sure no one's left out is great, but we always have to see, is the situation fostering a sense of relatedness for all our students.
0: Well, and I've always been a little bit confused on how it is that might have one student I taught middle school gets along with one teacher and none of the rest on the team. And the exact opposite that gets along with all of the teachers, but one. And I'm always curious as to how that works out, where the student just, I guess, you know, we all have different personalities, yeah. and that's natural that you like one person and not another. But in the classroom, as a teacher, you have mm-hmm. to put that aside. You have to pretend, right. at least, that uh-huh. you like all of them. How, how does that work? Well, with that sense of
1: relatedness, it is, and this is a big part of self-determination theory too, that humans have agency. And it's another one of those 95 cent teacher words agentic, research words in education. We have agency. We have the ability to make these choices. We can say yes or no. So we have autonomy. And if no one is giving that to us, we may become motivated as well. But we have agency, we are active people involved in creating our world. So the teacher, if you imagine a a two part, like two boxes sitting next to each other, one box feeds into the other, which feeds into the first and it becomes this little cycle. And there may have been something, and I I always fear that there's something I might have done that upset a student. I still feel that way in college, I had to chat with a student about being on her phone and then I found out why. And oh, I don't think she's ever gonna like me. <laughs> she, there was a, a trauma situation happening and yeah, um, I could have handled that so much better. So there's, there's things that, that we all do and some of it is by accident. We may forget and reference things like going to the movies. Kids in your class might not ever be able to afford to go to a movie. And that may make them kind of go, yeah, okay, well, she's just some rich lady. I don't, I'm not going to, I don't like. And so there's lots of little things that happen. It may be that by being really nice to everybody, you're being really nice to the kid who bullies him. You know, I mean, so there's a sense of control that we as teachers just don't have. And that's, we want that. Oh my gosh. If you remember a TV show way back called Mad About You, <laughs> it was with Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser. And there was this episode where friends of theirs in the condo building introduced them to some new friends. And the new friends didn't like the wife played by Helen Hunt. And it drove her mad. Why don't they like me? They have to like me. Everyone likes me. And so as teachers, sometimes we kind of get that way. Why don't they like me? I'm treating everybody the same. And, you know, great, whatever. There's a million things and perception is reality. So if the student sees something or, you know, is perceiving something, you don't know exactly what they're taking away from the situations. as much as we try, it's probably more important that we know that student has at least one solid relationship with an adult, so they have a, a person to go to. And we just keep trying, we just keep trying. That's good advice. So frequently, when you're in school studying motivation, you'll hear about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. and Like I said earlier, oh, we want the kids to all feel intrinsically motivated, and. But sometimes we have to give them you know, candy and stickers. Oh, you know, that's what happens, that's kids. But um, there's a lot of shades of color between extrinsic and intrinsic. A motivation is off to the left. And that really is where you're not motivated, you do not care, you don't know why you're there. Um, just imagine a scenario where you hate skiing You don't want to ski, you've never wanted to ski. And your boyfriend bought ski lift tickets for you and him and his brother and the brother's wife are coming. And You hate his brother's wife. So already, you don't want to ski and you don't like his wife, but you kind of feel obligated to go perhaps even a little controlled and your motivation that day for going skiing is probably going to be a motivation. Now, it's pretty rare to see that. Often kids are motivated in ways that we may disagree with, we may not like, but for the most part, uh, when, whenever we try to say things like, oh my gosh, my third period of class, they are so unmotivated. No. They're just motivated to do things that you don't like or that are differently than you would want them to do it. So the real, real a motivation is pretty rare. Um, Then after that, though, we get to the the extrinsic motivators and some of them are kind of good. And we'll talk about those in a minute. Some of them are kind of dangerous. Straight up extrinsic rewards. We think of it as external regulation. Your behavior is being controlled like you're a little puppet. I'm making little puppet hands now, you can't see it, but you're being controlled in what you do because you want a paycheck or because you want to go to the roller skating party at the end of the semester. It's the same for the kids, controlled by grades, controlled by getting a piece of candy. We have external regulation, uh, the stickers, the prizes, the rewards, behavior charts. There's a time and a place for these. And we'll talk more in our next episode about using these things and fading them. And I'm a former special ed teacher and I get it. Once you've got something that works, you do not want to stop. But the idea that these work and then you have to fade them a little bit. But ultimately for most kids, they don't need stickers. They don't need big time rewards. It could just be enough to give them a quick smile and a thumbs up. The next kind of extrinsic motivation that we see as kind of less, less healthy is called introjected motivation. Introjected is the motivation you have when you feel like you should do something. You have to, you should, and that can come from a lot of places. It can come from outside of you, where if someone's trying to guilt you into picking them up at the airport next week, even though you told them you're busy, oh, but come on, you're the only person I know who can come. It's going to generate introjected motivation. And if you do it, you're probably going to feel pretty crappy, but you're going to, you might do it anyway, Uh, uh, you know. It's not gonna make you feel fulfilled. It's just gonna make you feel like you're doing it because you should and you have to. Um, sometimes we do it as teachers. I've heard teachers say, all right, everybody, let's do this, let's do a great job on this today and make, you know, make Mrs. Moss really proud Really? Is this for me? So, you know, oh, or Mrs. Moss is really sad when you don't do this the right way. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that can lead to that introjected motivation, people pleasing. You know, we are also capable of shooting all over ourselves. And I say it like that with my students and at workshops all the time because it makes people laugh for a second and then they go, oh, yeah, I do that. Where, I should do this. I should do that. Oh my gosh. I should, I should water the grass today. I know it hasn't rained in a couple of days. I should, I should, I should do the dishes. I should iron the laundry. I should call my mom. I should, we could go on. And so that is that same uh, guilt driven, not it, it's internal kind of, but it's not good internal. So it's got a sense of obligation. Oh my gosh, yes, that's a great word for it. Yeah, I mean, you're just kind of doing it because you have to, or even that you feel you have to. You might feel like you have to call your mom. and If you were to really talk to her, she'd say, no, I get it, we talk on Sundays, it's really okay. But you still have that inside of you. We swing a little bit more as you're looking at the chart, a little more to the right. The next one is called identified regulation. And this is a little more positive. And this is honestly one of the ones that we try to encourage a lot in schools. And identified regulation happens when you, you know you should do this, or you know you're gonna do it, or you're doing it because you understand how important it is. Nobody likes studying for the SAT or the ACT or the GRE or the LSAT or the MCAT, but you know that well, at least up until very recently, that was your ticket to get to go to college or grad school. So you kind of, you understood. You, you're you making a choice, you're doing this. You're not saying you should study, but you're not. You're really doing it and you're doing it because you know it's important. With students in school, those, those dreaded spelling tests, if we can help students see why they're important, they might be more likely to develop that identified regulations so that they kind of agree and understand, okay, I get that. This is important. I'm gonna write papers in class in a couple of years and it's gonna be expected that I know how to spell. And okay,
0: we're building a foundation. Okay, you know, I get it, I understand. So Um, multiplications times tables. Why do we have to do timed tests for multiplication tables? Why do I even have to memorize four times five is 20? Well, it will make your life easier later if you do this now. Right. Okay.
1: Yeah, so if we can help them, we can promote valuing of the tasks. And often we go back to that controlling teacher paradigm because I said so, (laughs) or worse yet, because I'm filling out a pacing guide for this math curriculum, and that's what it says we're doing today. Not that I've ever been in that situation. Hmm. Yeah, when we can help them see why something is important, they're more likely to go, oh, all right, I still don't want to do it, but I get why this is important. There's one type of motivation that's still kind of extrinsic, but it's the farthest one to the right on the chart. And we don't talk about it a lot. It's called integrated regulation. And when we feel that something is integrated, it's part of who we are. We probably don't do the thing, whatever the thing is, fun, But it's like who we are. And one of the most common examples is recycling. And especially with students, they're really aware of this. They've been being made aware of this their whole lives and how important it is. And I would bet if you caught up with a bunch of students on Saturday afternoon, they are not out recycling for fun. Probably not. It's part of who they are. It's part of how they've been raised and they know that we recycle. And so that's integrated regulation. When you've really taken it inside of yourself. The last one, of course, is intrinsic motivation. And where we really feel intrinsic, we're doing the thing for the sheer joy of doing the thing. I like to do jigsaw puzzles. I don't do as many of them as I'd like to because I have a cat or two, but mostly one who thinks, oh, cool, it's like a (laughs) box you made with the border and I can lay in it. But to me, they're intrinsically motivating. I like to do them, they're fun. What makes it different from identified regulation that I just talked about is that anytime I want to stop doing the jigsaw puzzle, I can get up and walk away. Done. Yeah, you no, know, I'm done. And I can come back to it and I'm doing it because it's fun. And while that is what we think of as the prototype, the best kind of motivation, and sometimes we get that in the classroom. When things are clicking and we've got a hands-on project that the students are really into and there's just a lot happening and you know that in 10 minutes, they're supposed to go to music class and it's gonna break all their hearts to interrupt them, you may be seeing some intrinsic motivation. But on the other hand, if all we ever strive for is that intrinsic motivation, we aren't giving them tools maybe to do the things they don't want to do. So it is a balancing act between the have to's and the don't want to's and the, this is fun. And that's where providing lots of choice can help. Okay, I don't want to study my spelling words, but Mrs. Moss says I can write on the window with the window markers, or I can write them on my desk in shaving cream, or I can write them out by hand really fast and move on to a different project. Great. We got some choices. That can help students engage in the things that maybe don't feel too exciting to them, but we can try to help them find a way to make it interesting. And, and in your own life, it's kind of the same. We would recommend people be around other people that are supporting your autonomy. I love this. Another professor I work with at Emporia State said this, um, and I'm going to keep my description of what she said short, because I hope you have her on soon, and she'll tell the whole story. But you're going to hang out with lots of other teachers, and some of them are beneficial plants, And some of them might be the plants that compete with your roots for water and nutrients, and some of them might be weeds or the kind of weeds that vine up your stem and choke the plant. But you have a choice of who you're going to hang out with. Sometimes you have a fourth and fifth grade team that you have to spend time with, or you might have a certain cluster of people, or maybe you just don't love your new assistant principal. Some of these aren't optional, but when you have the choice, hang out with people that support your sense of autonomy. They help you see that you've got some choices and that there are things you can do, that you have some power, you have agency. When you are stuck somewhere where you don't necessarily want to be, you don't like it, like, oh, I didn't ask to go to this restaurant, there may be ways that you can find some things you have choices about. Okay, I get to pick what I get to order. If I angle carefully, I might get to sit next to Suzanne, who was going to tell me all about her vacation, and that sounded interesting, things like that. So you've got some choice and some agency. Make sure you're not shoulding all over yourself making sure that you know what is important and doing those things instead of just telling yourself oh yeah you know i have i should do all these things but i'm not well maybe they're not important you don't have to do them and making sure that you're spending time with people that you feel authentic around i like that one of the things we'll talk about in our next episode is How we we want to support autonomy, we want to provide autonomy support, but it has to be within a structure. So we're not advocating for chaos. Well, that's good. Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty good, yeah. Um, But when I hear my students coming back to me in Ed Psych, you know, a little year, year and a half later, I hear them talking about choice boards and things like that. And we talk a lot about universal design for learning. And these are ways that we can incorporate choice in the classroom to help make sure students have some agency and some power and have that sense of volition. It's like, oh, I don't wanna write another book report. Oh, well, did you see? On the board for that, you can make a video or you can record, you know, there's a lot of choices here. Let's take a look, which one of those looks good to you? Oh, yeah, I wanna do that. Can I work with a partner? Yes, you can work with a partner you've now not become the controlling teacher who says, you're going to do a book report and it has to be four pages and I do not want to see any misspelled words. And now you're offering some opportunities.
0: And yet the student still reads a book. Yes. And still demonstrates that they did read the book and that they learned something from that process. Exactly. So that's where it's autonomy
1: within a structure. So we'll talk more about that next time and how to do both still... Feel like you know your students
0: aren't um, under your thumb the whole time. Awesome! I'm looking forward to it. Me too. This is great. Okay. Anything else that you want to share about the theory and the background understanding, self-determination theory, and the different levels of motivation?
1: One piece that might really help us. of ground what we've talked about today is that self-determination theory and other more humanist types of motivation came about in the 1960s. You may have heard in your teacher training, self-efficacy, achievement motivation. We came across, we discovered these ideas as a, a reaction to behaviors. And that when you think about Skinner, and that goes all the way back, if you remember your Ed site to things like Watson making little Albert afraid of the rat and so on and so forth. But we had behaviorism. And you know, you do what I tell you to do. We're we're focused on the behavior that's gonna get the result at the end. And after a while, people started to think, wow, these are human beings. I'm a human being even if i work at the factory where it's exactly my behavior that's being paid every day and blah, 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 i still want to be treated like an individual that's where we kind of i mean that backlash might be too strong a word but maybe not and so thinking of these as a way to see people rather than just see somebody pushing a button to get the right answer on a program. When you think about B.F. Skinner's education devices that he came up with, you know, we want to, we want to be more focused on the
0: human beings. I like that. More focused on the human beings. Yeah. I hope you'll join us for our second episode coming soon with Dr. Jenny Moss and strategies on self-determination theory and motivation in the classroom.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to talk to you all some more. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you want to write to us, our email is hwtt.com. At Emporia.edu. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at HWTT underscore ESU, and you can find us on Facebook. Just search for How We Teach This. This episode was produced by Christy Dugan. Thanks also to our intern, Matilda Asame, as well as Dr. Zenny Colorado-Resa and Terry Kaiser. I'm Christy Dugan, and you've been listening to How We Teach This.
1: This episode of How We Teach This is sponsored by ESU's undergraduate programs in psychology, offering a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Science in Education, and a minor you can match with any major. Our psychology courses will assist you in your career in psychology or help you develop a deeper understanding of thought for whatever field you choose. Learn more at www.emporia.edu slash psychology.